Beverly, thanks for that. And by the way, let me just say a thank you to all of our Kidtropolis heroes. So many of you who are stepping up to make uh, church in person for our kids happening again. So many of you serving on our tech teams, on our setup and pack up. Uh, and uh, just, just so grateful for all of those who are going to make that possible. We are, we are in your debt and we can't wait to do it with you next Sunday. We are so excited. Well, uh, before we get into the message today, I just wanted to pause uh, because, you know, what's in the air right now, of course, is the election that's right around the corner. And I just want to say a word to you as a pastor, uh, a little bit of an encouragement. I know it's a divisive time, and I know that right now we, we, a lot of us are feeling very unstable, maybe even anxious about the future. And I just want to remind you of what the Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 13. Paul reminds us there that there are no authorities in this world that are greater than God. Different leaders will come and they will go over our lifetime, but God's sovereignty is still intact. God's sovereignty is not threatened. And as his children, that is what we ultimately trust in. We trust that God is sovereign yet. Paul finishes this famous chapter in Romans 13 with a little challenge that he gives to believers. When he tells them, he reminds them, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to clothe yourselves in Christ Jesus. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. Those of you who would call yourselves followers of Jesus. Can we agree to four things in these coming days? First of all, I want to call everyone to pray. Can we all pray? We need to pray for our leaders for our nation, and of course, for the election. Can we all agree that everybody will vote? As Christians, we need to not only be good citizens, we need to be engaged because it's a spiritual responsibility. Thirdly, can we agree that everybody will seek the counsel of the Scriptures and vote with your Holy Spirit-informed conscience? Ask God for the wisdom as you enter into voting. And then fourth and finally, can we remember that everybody uh, that, that Jesus calls us to love our enemies, even those on the opposite side of the aisle from us. So today I want to do just that. I want to pray with you, and then we're going to get into the message. Would you join with me in this prayer? Father, we thank you that we live in a nation where we have the right to vote and to participate in the selection of our political leaders. We pray for the election this November and that you would lead us to be a people after your own heart. Would you call our leaders in local, state, and national positions to lead in the way of Jesus, that they might put the interest of others before their own? And would you make us a nation that would seek first your kingdom and its righteousness, that we might honor and glorify you? We pray for your peace, for your grace in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we wrap up our series called Money Talks, and you might say that over these last many weeks, uh, Snoop Dogg has had it right. We've had our mind on our money and our money on our mind. Now, what we've been asking in this series, the big question we've been asking is, if money could talk, if our money could talk, what would our money say to us? What is it that our money would want to tell us about itself and about its role in our lives? That's what we've been looking at. And week one, Pastor Mitch uh, shared with us about how everything comes from God. We are not owners, we are stewards, and everything is a gift. 
Week two, Mitch laid out for how the scriptures teach us to live by a budget, to live within our means. Last week, I talked about Jesus' strange and compelling warning. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't have two masters. But how giving can be a pathway. Giving first can be a pathway to freedom. And today, as we wrap up this series, I want to talk about how money, get this, how money can actually bring greater meaning to our lives. Now, this word, meaning, is kind of an interesting word. In fact, the very idea of words having meaning is something about what it means to mean something. Meaning always points to something else. It literally describes something that points to something beyond itself. That's what it means to be a means to an end. A means to an end means that something is meaningful when it points to a greater purpose beyond itself. In other words, to live a life full of meaning is to be a means to something else, something greater than yourself. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. Money, we all know this, money is simply a tool. Money and stuff in and of themselves are not good or bad. They are just tools. So, for example, if I'm hungry, I can use money to buy tacos to fill my belly. In this case, money is simply a means to an end, namely tacos, which is Jesus' favorite food, which is why they serve it in heaven. Now, if money could talk, if our money could talk, here is what our money would say to us about this idea of being a means to an end. Money would say, I am not the meaning of your life. I can't be. But I can help add meaning to your life. So, how is it that money serves in our lives as a means to a greater end? In other words, the question I want to kick around with you today is, how can money bring greater meaning to our lives? Interestingly enough, Jesus told a parable about this very topic. It's one of the strangest parables of all the parables in the Bible. In fact, it comes from Luke's gospel. And when you first hear this parable, this story of Jesus, if you're not familiar with it, when you first hear it, you're going to think, what is this doing in the Bible? This is such an odd story. It's quite shocking. Jesus most often taught in these parables, these stories, because he knew the power of story to capture the human imagination. He knew that even if we didn't fully understand the story at first, it would kind of live in us like a seed and eventually grow to produce fruit, to have the effect that he desired. And often, Jesus' parables, in Jesus' parables, there was something odd. There, there was something out of place, something that stood out as strange so that we might think about it. We might remember it. Think for a minute about some of Jesus' famous parables. Maybe you've heard of some of these. There's one about a farmer who throws seed on the rocks and on the road. This is either an overly confident farmer or somebody who doesn't have the foggiest clue about farming. So when you first hear that, you think, what is this all about? What's this farmer doing? This is so strange. And you begin to lean in. That's Jesus' point. Or how about this one? The one about the guy who builds a house on the sand, on the beach. And again, it's just a very strange thing. Nobody does this. Nobody in their right mind does this. It's a very strange story. And yet, and yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about these stories that Jesus told. 
You see, Jesus, Jesus was a master storyteller. But his stories were always trying to lead us somewhere. Inviting us to think about things differently or to live differently in light of the story. So let's jump in. Our story today comes from chapter 16. Uh, I just love this little nerdy moment. Uh, One Bible translation, the NIV, gives the title heading to this story called The Shrewd Accountant. The New American Standard Bible gives the title The Unrighteous Accountant. You can decide which one you think is a better fit. Here's where the story begins. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Now you see, we already have the hook to the story right here, don't we? Jesus starts out with a, there was a rich man. There once was a rich man. It's kind of a once upon a time kind of intro. And you can feel the disciples already beginning to lean in because this is going to be a good one. This is going to be a doozy. There's a rich man and his manager, or we might say his accountant, and that accountant has been up to something shady. And so already we know somebody's about to get busted. Now, it's also worth noting that right here at the beginning that Jesus, often in Jesus' parables, there is someone or something that represents God and his kingdom or someone or something that represents you and me. With these two characters introduced, I'll let you guess as to which one represents the rich man and which one represents the man who has been entrusted to manage his stuff. So you see the manager here, he's been wasting, or another translation in the Greek says, he has been reckless with the manager's money. And as the audience, as those listening to Jesus tell the story, we're like, uh-oh, we know where this is going. But look what happens next. Verse 2, so he, that's the boss, the rich man, called him in and asked him, dude, what is this I hear about you? Give an account for your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. So the rich man, what's he doing? He's going to fire the manager, right? But before he lets him go, he says, listen, you are clearly fired, but, but I kind of need you to tidy up the loose ends for me. Bring me the big notebook, give it to me, and then you're out of here. You can no longer be my manager. Now, at this point, I think everyone in Jesus' day is leaning in. Where is this story going? What is Jesus talking about? And Jesus continues in the odd way. The manager said to himself, and this is the key word, here it is, what shall I do now? What shall I do now? Oh no, I wasn't expecting this. I didn't think this was where the story was going to go. I've been caught. I've been busted. What should I do now? My master, he's taken away my job. And look, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm more of an indoors kind of guy. I'm too ashamed to beg. You know, I've got my pride. And suddenly, the manager finds himself, the guy in the parable, with a small window of time to figure out where he's going and what he's going to do. In other words, this is his moment. So he thinks about it. And he comes up with an idea. And he says to himself, Jesus, again, continuing the story here, I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do so that when, because it's always always about time, it's always about this moment, when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. 
So he comes up with this plan to make sure that he's no longer, when, he, when he's no longer employed by the rich guy, he has some place to go and someone to go to. So here's the plan he comes up with. Look with me at verse 5. So he, that's the manager, called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first one, hey man, how much do you owe my master? And the first guy says, well, I owe your master 900 gallons of olive oil. And the manager told him, all right, take your bill, sit down quickly because I don't have much time. This is my moment. And I need to make sure I take good advantage of all the limited time I have right here. So sit down and rewrite your note for 450 gallons of oil. Wait, what, what's he doing? Well, then he brings the second guy and he says, hey, how much do you owe my master? And he says, a thousand bushels of wheat. So the manager tells him, take your bill, quickly sit down and write 800. And at this point, I mean, y'all, at this point, everyone in Jesus' audience is like, wait, what? This guy is totally cheating his master. Now he's not just going to lose his job. Now this dude is going to end up in jail. We know where this is headed. And it's right here that we kind of expect the whole story to just open up. And we know, hey, the bad guy who did something wrong gets busted, right? But look at what happens when the master shows up. Verse 8, Jesus says, The master, instead of throwing him in prison, instead of busting him, taking him to court, the master commended he applauded. He praised the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. What is Jesus doing here? What's his point? I mean, really, this is such an odd story about a guy cheating his boss out of his money. What is Jesus wanting us to see in this strange parable? Well, he tells us right in the next verse. Look there with me. I tell you, this is Jesus speaking now. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Was that clear? No. Jesus, what are you talking about? Worldly wealth. Is there another kind, Jesus? And what does worldly wealth have to do with eternity? You see, this is such an odd parable. But Jesus is telling this story to cut beneath the surface, to get around our defenses and barriers, to get to our hearts, because there's something critical here that he wants us to see. And so with the last few minutes we have, I want to draw out just three lessons that I think we can learn from this parable. Three lessons from the unrighteous manager. And the first one is simply this. The first lesson from the unrighteous manager is you can't take it with you. You know, it's kind of funny. We already know this, right? We, we, we even make movies and tell stories about this. We know this, but it's so easy to forget. In fact, since the very beginning of time, human beings have really struggled with this idea. I mean, we really like our stuff and our money. In fact, it's really funny. Uh, the early pharaohs in Egypt, thousands of years ago, who quite honestly were the wealthiest people in the ancient world, they really struggled with this. They would often be buried with many of their possessions. 
Some were buried with mirrors, makeup kits. I mean, no joke, y'all, like, like Maybelline makeup kits right there. Oh, well, not Maybelline, but you get the idea. Some were buried with multiple wine glasses in case the first few broke. I don't know, raging parties inside the, the pyramids. And, and King Tut was one of the strangest of all the pharaohs in this way. King Tut, get this, was actually buried with his boat. The dude decided to try to take his boat to the grave. Now, Here's the point. Here's the point. There you go. There's the picture of his boat. Isn't that funny? That was actually in his grave. <laughs> now, I know some of you are thinking, hey, man, that's not a bad idea. I wonder if I can take my boat with me. Short answer, no, you can't. You can't take it with you. We know that our money and our stuff is only ours for a short while. It is only ours while we are here on earth. And then you know what? When we move on, when our moment is over, all of that stuff becomes someone else's. Which brings us to our second lesson. Our money and our possessions can be a means to something greater. Remember, this is what it means to have a meaningful life. To have a meaningful life means that we use our time, our stuff, our wealth for a purpose beyond ourselves. Because that's exactly what the manager does in Jesus' story. You know, there was once a famous study done at Stanford University where students were each given $20 uh, and half of those students were told that they could go and spend that $20 on themselves, whatever they wanted. They could go eat out, they could go see a movie, they could buy some clothes or whatever. And the other half were told that they could take the $20, but they had to spend it on behalf of someone else. They all came back the next day and it was really interesting. They were sitting down and rating their own experience and the happiness and joy that it brought them. The ones who spent the money on themselves reported no change in their happiness. But the ones who spent the money on others came back with incredible stories of joy and gratitude. In fact, one researcher tells that many of the students even wrote on the back of their forms the stories of their encounters because they had been so struck by this experience. The researchers hadn't even thought to create a space for people to share stories. You see, the truth is, in life, we can have more stuff or we can have more stories. But we cannot have it both. So I want to suggest for a moment, when you're making decisions, and you've got to make decisions, you've got bills to pay, you've got obligations, but when you're making decisions about your resources, your money, what if you were to factor this question in? What if you were to sit and ask yourself this question? Do I want more stuff or do I want more stories? Do I want more stuff in life? Or do I want more stories to tell? And how are we doing on this one? Really, how are you doing on this one? I think many of us feel a great lack of meaning. We're just kind of going through the motion. We're just going through the grind. And we wonder why we long for greater meaning. What if you were to use your time, your resources, your stuff, your wealth as a means to another end, as a purpose to something beyond you? And this brings us to our third and final lesson from Jesus' parable, which is simply this. Our right now resources, 
the money we have right now, the wealth we have, the stuff, the time, our right now resources have the potential to make a forever difference. You see, this is what Jesus says is the point of the whole parable. Look, he's not commending that you go and cheat your boss. That's not the point. That's the gimmick of the story that provides the hook. The lesson from the story is simply this, that you are to use worldly wealth, Jesus says, for an eternal purpose. You are to use your right now resources for an eternal purpose. Now, what would that look like for you? One of my favorite stories that illustrates this point uh, is a story about a man who was born at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, he, by a very young age, he was in his 20s, he had already made hordes of money in his business. And he had a friend who was starting a Christian school in Africa for kids who could not have school otherwise. And his friend needed funding. Well, this young successful businessman decided to give a huge lump sum to help start this school. And then he just went on with his own life. 25 years later, in the early 1950s, the school was marking its 25th anniversary and wanted to invite their benefactor to the celebration. When they finally tracked him down, this man who had given the money was now living in a small rented apartment in a very modest section of Chicago. He had lost everything in the 19. 29 stock market crash, and he had barely managed to pull himself back up to this very modest level of living. At first, when he heard the invitation, he refused. He didn't want to come. But eventually, he consented to come and be a part of the ceremony. As he sat there at the platform, watching student after student receive their graduation diploma, walk across the stage, he became overcome with emotion. The headmaster asked him if he was okay. And the man, looking back at the headmaster through tears in his eyes, responded with this. He said, you know, it really is true. The only thing I have is what I gave away. Jesus says that we are called to use our right now resources for an eternal purpose, to make a difference that will last forever, a difference beyond us, a difference beyond our own needs, our own families, but to make an impact in the world and the lives of those around us. If being a means to an end is what gives your life meaning and purpose, to what ends do you want your life to be a means? Said differently. What difference will your life make beyond you? Well, Lake Forest Church, you all are so amazing in so many ways around this idea. And, and I just want to brag on you for just a moment, two ways specifically. Uh, first of all is those of you who've given to our Rooted campaign and to the building of our permanent church building in Denver. I was out there this week and they have the steel up. Oh my word, y'all. It is quite striking. I invite you to drive out there and see it for yourself. And I was driving by and it just occurred to me that those of you who've been a part of Rooted and given to that, you are part of a legacy that will outlive you. One day, spoiler alert, you will not be here anymore. <laughs> I won't be here anymore. But we will have been the, a part of the founding of a church that will live on impacting future generations for many, many decades to come. And can you imagine, can you imagine someday when that building's done, standing there 
with your children, your grandchildren, say, we were a part of that. We were a part of that greater purpose beyond ourselves. So to those of you who've been a part of that, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. What amazing act of generosity and a means to a greater end beyond you, beyond me. But there's a second way that you might not know about that you have already been a part of as a church. Uh, We recently formed a partnership with a church planting network in North Africa, reaching a Muslim context for people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want you to hear a little bit more about that. To tell us a little bit more, would you please welcome to the stage our own elder, Teresa Sharp. Teresa, come on up. We need like thunderous applause. We need like a sound effect so she like, <laughs> all right. Uh, Teresa, it's so great to have you Thank here. You. Really appreciate you coming. Uh, Teresa, you've had some firsthand uh, knowledge and even gotten to meet many of the folks involved yes. in this network. Uh, this, well, last January, Teresa was a part of the team that went to Egypt to learn more about this network and how we could partner I saw with that them. boat. You did. I saw that you boat. Saw it Tuck's was in, boat. In, the, in the museum, yes. It, that's crazy. <laughs> well, tell your husband he doesn't get to take his no. boat with him. All right, yeah. so back on point. Teresa, um, first of all, this, this network is based in Egypt, and they are planting churches in Tunisia. Uh, for many of our folks, they might not even know where Tunisia is. Tell us about Tunisia and where it's located. Yes, so I'll put my homeschool hat on. Um, is there a picture coming there it up? Is. There yes, it is. awesome. Ooh, I, I feel like the, the, the weather forecaster. So Tunisia, yes, is the little red sliver between Algeria and Libya there. So Tunisia, just as a comparison, is a little larger than the state of New York, but has about 8 million people less than New York. So that gives you kind of context for the size. Real small country, but the interesting thing and the spiritual opportunity and just like the sermon of of giving ourselves away to something that's bigger than us is this country of 12 million people have less than 2,500 Christians in the entire country. Hmm. So that's like Lake Forest and its four churches on Easter Sunday has more people gathered on that Sunday than there are Christians in the entire country of Tunisia. It's 99.9% Muslim. So we have this incredible eternal opportunity to go uh, and, and share the gospel with those through this partnership with the largest church, Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Cairo, Egypt, of all places. Isn't that great? Did you know? Yeah, I, apparently we got some Presbyterians over in Egypt. Look at that. Yes, Go. and it's exciting. The thing that made the partnership, and we went in January to kind of just, it's like a date. Like we wanted to make sure before we became married to this opportunity that it was a good fit. And we were so humbled by just the depth of love uh, that this church has for the the Muslim people. They have a pastor who would be compared to our Billy Graham. Mm. So he is revered, not just in the Protestant world, but in the Muslim uh, country as well, because he broadcast from his church every Sunday to about 200, 300,000 Muslim hearers through a satellite operation that they run. Awesome. And when our pastor at Huntersville, Mike Moses, went in January, he, his sermon was translated live into Arabic. And so 
up to 300,000 people heard Mike Moses preach, which is kind of cool. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, Teresa, so this church in Egypt, uh, which is really thriving, by the way, uh, you might not know this, but there are many regions in the world right now, uh, south of the equator, well, well, just all around the globe, quite honestly, where the church is thriving. And we're seeing that in Egypt. We're seeing um, nominal Muslims coming to faith in Jesus in some of the most spectacular ways. There's a real openness to spirituality. And so oftentimes, people will, well, they'll encounter Jesus in a dream or in a vision. And they'll come with questions saying, who is this? Jesus and how can I follow him? It's so remarkable. But through this church, uh, they have managed to connect with those 2,500 Christians in Mm -hmm. Tunisia, all of whom are meeting in small church plants in homes Mm -hmm. led by dentists, dentists, professors, bivocational pastors, Mm -hmm. uh, and just these small clusters in homes. And they've said, look, we want to work with Lake Forest, with some other churches here in the Charlotte region who do church planting. Mm-hmm. And we want to partner with you through our knowledge of Arab culture mm-hmm. and North African culture and, and quite honestly, Muslim culture. And we want to work together to see this church planting network grow and thrive in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, Teresa, tell us just, just a tiny bit more about what that looks like. Well, one of the things that has already happened, you mentioned that Westlake is is partnering, and some of the monies that we used in this partnership actually became uh, real eternally life-bearing over COVID, of all things. So part of the monies that we had set aside were to go to uh, some social network training for these 17 pastors so that they could kind of reach out and, and, and do some more broadcasting past what their physical ability was. And when COVID hit, in Tunisia in particular, they had very, very strict, like drone flying over your house strict uh, quarantines. So we moved up the opportunity for the social networking. Uh, We had a a group in Cairo that was part of that church that were professionals in that. They became uh, mentors and set up the social media platform that these pastors were able to use to share the gospel during the quiet time when they couldn't meet in homes. Mm. And the beta test from that setup had 100,000 inquiries. And this is in a country where there's only like 2,500 Christians. So the investment that you make with, with now dollars into a place where people are so ripe for hearing uh, mm. the word of Jesus is, is incredible. And mm. we thank you. And that's why I wore my Westlake Serves shirt. I love it. I love it. Because we are a church that not only serves our local community, we serve to the ends of the world. And when you're on the plane trying to get there, that's the way it felt. <laughs> Well, Teresa, thank you for um, your investment Mm -hmm. in going there and being a part of that Mm -hmm. discernment. Uh, Teresa shared with me that uh, we just got word from the leadership teams there. Uh, They just just recently, after this, through the social media program, had 11 people uh, profess faith in Jesus, which means the church grew by, well, like almost half a percent (laughs) just just in the last two weeks, which is incredible. Um, But here's what I want you to know, church. Uh, We set aside 10% of every dollar given every single dollar given that goes beyond the walls of our church to be a part of the mission of God, what we call the Missio Dei. And so if you have ever given or you are currently giving, you have been a part of making an eternal difference in the Arabic world for Muslims who are desperate to hear about the good news and grace of Jesus Christ. 
So thank you for being a part of that. There's so much more for us to share. We're going to be partnering for training, some theological education, some church planting uh, facilitation, lots more to come. Uh, but Teresa, would you mind just praying for that mission and for us as a church, our partnership? Absolutely. And I would encourage you, if you have any questions about the, this opportunity, this partnership, please call me. Uh, I'd love to meet and talk to you about it. And one of the things, obviously, when we are uh, distant from our partners in, in Tunisia, this is my prayer reminder, which is the Tunisian flag. Love it. Uh, and I have plenty of these. So if you would like to partner and just have an opportunity to have a reminder to pray over the, the partnership, but also about the souls that could really um, just hear the word of Christ and have it make an eternal difference in their lives, I will get you a flag. Uh, but let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear sweet, sweet Jesus, uh, we just thank you that you are not a God of just Denver or North Carolina or America, but you are a God of our universe. Yes. And we pray, Lord, that in the midst of that, that you will allow us to play our part in going, in sharing the gospel. The gospel's first synonym is go. And Lord, that can look like physical transportation to share who you are, but it can also mean praying for those that are going and uplifting those that are already there doing your work in a place where it is dangerous, um, where they give up jobs and families to convert to Christianity. So Lord, we pray that you would be seen and heard, that you would give those that hear just the strength, the perseverance to move forward in their faith, to make a stand, and help us to undergird that, just like the house that's not built on sand, Lord, but the house that's built on your rock, your firm foundation. May we help those new believers have that kind of rock. Thank you for giving us the privilege of serving you in such a beautiful, beautiful way. Amen. Amen.